This is Christopher James, and you've been listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. What I was saying, Chris, is that um, I was with my fiance, and you had no idea that I had gone through a divorce. So, so you were you were looking at me as if um, should I say anything? Uh, maybe maybe we'll just talk about other things. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I've seen it all, so I know how to roll with the punches. So I didn't want to, you know, put you in an even more awkward position. So no, it was it was great to see you, and uh, I can't believe I haven't seen you since then. Um, but a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that you decided to leave the 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 business side of music and go back and be an artist. Yeah, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. You know, I, I kind of had done, what I didn't ever want to do was hang on, right? You know, was go to Sony and do what I was doing. I mean, I just, I felt very proud of what we accomplished at Polygram and then Universal. I wasn't pleased with all the politics, but I felt I'd gone as far as I could go. And then the things that I wanted to do uh, to stay, you know, branching off into management and kind of creating a real, I don't even call it 360 because it's kind of a stupid thing, but but right. just, just using all the assets that existed in the sort of more sophisticated end of the Universal Music Group from classical and jazz and Broadway, not sort of defining everything by a recording or a digital file. And they just, they, they liked the idea, but they just couldn't, they couldn't commit, you know, because those things required really breaking down some barriers and going in, in new directions. And I said, well, you know, that's the only thing I'd really want to do. They don't want to do that. Then, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to rethink my life really. And, and, the end result was, you know, the record executive thing was the accident, you know, as right, a, right. you know, I started off as, uh, you know, with a pretty successful career in hindsight, you know, albeit in Germany for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I kind of stumbled into the executive thing. So, um, so I'm, I'm really, as you said, very simply, I've just come back, gone back to what I used to do. Yeah. Well, you know, at full disclosure, for, for those listening, um, Chris is is someone who I've known for years. Uh, I consider him one of the smartest guys in the music business because not only did he love the music and understand the music, but he also understood that there's a business that and, and serious business needed to be taking place. And it had to be serious about the business and serious about the music. For those of you who don't know, he was the CEO of Universal Classics and Jazz when Universal bought Polygram and while his bio speaks for itself, and you should check it out, he signed some of the the biggest artists in the business, from Pavarotti to Renee Fleming, Bocelli, some of the jazz folks that you know, Chris Bodie, Wayne Shorter, and also worked with pop artists like Elvis Costello and Sting. And so I I, I have a, a warm spot for for Chris because I, I really enjoyed working with him on the business side, but I've also enjoyed his music. So we're going to talk about that today, uh, and. You know, right. one of the one of the things I wanted to start with was when I first realized you were an exec and an artist was through your duo band, whatever you want to call it, uh, Val Gardena. And um, tell us about that, how that project came to be. You did several albums, I know, back in the 90s. I always enjoyed those projects because, while I guess some folks might mislabel them as smooth jazz. I always found them more yellow jackets than David Benoit. These records were on Mercury. Um, how did that whole uh, collaboration come about? Well, that started, um, the name Val Gardena had actually um, sort of created and put away in a box for a future time back in the mid 80s when I was living in Munich, Germany, writing a lot of music for television and film and TV jingles and things. And I'd reached, as I think we all do, I'd reached this point in the early 90s, probably around 92, 93, where I felt I was, as an executive, I was losing touch with um, 
my creative side. And, and I kind of looked in the mirror and said, you know, I don't like what you're becoming. Um, you're you're kind of losing touch with what got you here, you know, making music and, and responding to music and and never putting another artist in a box, you know, trying to uh, keep your mind open to whatever they might do and, and listen to what they say, listen to what they're singing about, what they're what they're composing, recording, etc. And the only way out of that sort of um, conundrum that I felt that I was in was was to go back and create music again. And so Jeff Leonard, who was the other part of Val Gardena, he I, and, and I had worked together on a few things and uh, years before that. And so I said, look, uh, I've got an idea. I'd like you to be part of it. And um, we rendezvoused in Las Vegas and drove to L.A. And by the time we were in L.A., I kind of had the whole thing, at least conceptually, in mind. And um, we started work shortly after that and um, and managed to come up with three albums uh, from 94 to you know, 98, 99. So, uh, and I did that while I was, had a pretty intense day job, but, um, <laughs> but those, those projects were quite different in the way they, uh, they, they came about in the sense that, that I was burning it, burning the candle at all ends really. And, and um, I would, I would, I know this sounds crazy, I would record, um, I'm not the first to do this, I would record my ideas into the answering machine and then, <laughs> and then he, he would have the code into the answering machine. God knows what else he heard in there, but but he would then uh, um, get these ideas and we'd, we'd transcribe them and, and we began like that, a truly collaborative way. It was not so much... I would write my tune and he would write his tune and we'd arrange them together and the album would come about. They, they were pretty collaborative from conception. So, and, and that was, that was the way those, those albums uh, came about. And um, uh, when I left Universal in 2011, at that time, I said, well, let's start where I left off with Val Gardena and, and the first, the sort of the first album back on my journey to Christopher James was, was a Val Gardena record. So, so um, uh, it, it, it was uh, and is in a way uh, a very fulfilling experience. And, and Jeff uh, is a wonderful musician himself. And, and uh, that, that part of me is, is still there for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I followed Jeff as well. I mean, I know he's, he's got at least one album on Origin Records, and uh, he's a wonderful player. Uh, and actually, what I love about Jeff is, is and you fit kind of the same uh, sort of description, and that is he's not locked into one genre. Uh, and he does, he does a lot of things, and he does them well. You know, the, the one thing that I should tell listeners is that um, I remember, Chris, our very first meeting about uh, starting a, a boutique label within the Verve Group. And the one thing that I noticed instantly in the meeting, it was with, uh, was with uh, Mark Wexer, Lee Rittenauer, you, Chris, um, uh, sorry, Chuck Mitchell, and myself. I could tell that as much as you were a businessman, you were a huge fan. And I saw the interaction between you and Rittenauer, and you almost immediately left the business side of the meeting and started talking about music. Yeah. And, and we continue to this day doing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, um, the, the, the Val, Val isn't that a, a village in uh, Italy? It is, it is in uh, the Sud Tyrol um, and the Tyrolean Alps, one of the great ski resorts um, in the world. And, I, uh, it, skiing is one thing, well, there are several things, but it's one of several things I don't do. And, <laughs> but, but I liked it because it was very, um, ambiguous and, and poetic. And if you've been there, it's beautiful. I mean, unbelievably beautiful. Uh, photos. And, and, uh, you know, like, you know, some names really mean something. Some, some names don't. Th this was more... It just, I felt, 
I didn't want to call it me and I didn't want to pick an arbitrary, uh, you know, th there was no symbolic name to go with there. So, so, you know, that's, it seemed to suit uh, my circumstances at the time when we started recording as well. Well, you know, it, 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 it is uh, interesting that you picked that name because it could be misconstrued as a person's name. Uh, it, it, but it also stands for something very serene. The photos that I, I remember looking one years ago, looking up uh, the Gardena and, and to get some images on, on the web. And I saw this almost magical, mystical, as you mentioned, ski resort, but this little village that you, you want to book a trip to. Um, and and that's, it kind no, of, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, I, I, as I said, I'm not not being a skier of any or liking snow. It, it, it had something different appealing to me, you know. And of course, the as I said, the the non-specific nature, man, woman, place. You know, I, 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 in this case, it's a place, but you know, it could be it could be anything. And and it and but if you know it, it invokes a really beautiful sort of feeling. And to me, that was that was important. I, I wasn't going to call call us Portland, you know. <laughs> so the, the uh, but it does fit with your music in that you have you have certainly a a an interest in this serene orchestral uh, music that creates a certain imagery. And uh, I I heard it in the Val Gardena records. I heard it on your solo projects. I've heard it. Uh, certainly on your most recent, The Sad Waltz, where there's there's a certain almost soundtrack to your approach in that you want to, the listener to get a visual. That's exactly right. The visual, a feeling, you know, uh, certainly a strong, sensual uh, attachment to the music that that's definitely a goal yeah and and the um there's something very organic about it almost you know and and your your i guess the last project like this house by the railroad uh yeah. it it reminded me of windham hill at its best um oregon paul mccandless a little bit of lyle mays thrown out thrown in and certainly so well, yeah those are uh, you're comparing me to to um, gods of a sort. You know, these are these are um, real touchstone artists for sure. Yeah, and, and but but in addition to those artists, that obviously you can tell that you have a uh, they've been inspiring to you. There's also some old stuff in there. There's there's some Burt Bacharach. I hear a little Moody Blues. Really. Well, yeah. you know, uh, it's possible. Well, I don't know. Look, you know, that's I'm OK with that. You know, uh, <laughs> days of future past that that, you know, that's um, that's a wonderful landmark record, impressionable in every way, every meaning of the word um, uh, album. So uh, I, I like that. I hadn't heard that one before, Michael, but uh but I, I'm not uh, I'm not running away from that. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 where I came from. You know, I I, I was a, a a a Beatles fan. Then I turned prog rock, and one of the things I loved about progressive rock was the softer side of progressive rock, the softer side of fusion, uh, weather reports, softer compositions, and. Mm. And what I liked about it is what I see you do, and it, I, I use this quote a lot. There was a description of Steely Dan once that said, "It's definitely jazz, but it's not too much jazz." <laughs> That's great for them. That's perfect. Yeah, That's yeah. So on on the there was a there was a track I remember. I think it was on House by the Railroad. I think it was called Chandler. Yeah. And and, and what I loved about that, I don't know if you ever listened to. Steve Kahn did a version of Wayne Shorter's Infant Eyes. Uh, and that song reminded me so much of Steve Kahn's version of that Wayne Shorter tune. Uh, you should, you should I, I, check I, it out. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm writing it down now, which is something I can do since we're on the phone. I wouldn't do it if we were in person. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, and then, you know, there's on that same record, even though there's that kind of jazzy, very uh, instrumental, 
solo track on the same record, which is what I see you like to do. There's this kind of very groove tune uh, on the QT, which is in a completely different direction. Maybe something that I might hear walking into a club at 2 a.m. That, um, I know, in so many ways. It's funny, people, some people who hear that go, I love that. I love it. My favorite thing is on the QT. Other people go, what on earth are you thinking putting that on the, al on the album? You know? and, and I guess that, that's my fault. You know? I, I am an eclectic uh, composer. I'm an eclectic um, sort of listener of music. And as I said in the liner notes, on that particular track, you know, we're of the same age, we're the same vintage. Um, musically, we we kind of had we had these reference points where there'd be on an album some crazy sort of song that made no sense to anything else, you know. And mm -hmm. you and, and and a lot of people in and it became kind of the I hate it, I love it sort of moment. And I used to always say to artists when 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 they were fighting over whether a particular tune should be on the record or not, I said, you know, sometimes the tune that you hate is a, is a tune that most other people like. So, you know, <laughs> that sort of um, uh, disparate range of of emotion about liking or not liking is often a good sign, you know, uh, and, and a lot of times the reasons why we kind of get hung up on whether something should or shouldn't be on is for all the wrong reasons. So, so I'm, I'm glad you're responding to it. And it, it's just a fun, it's just a fun track, you know, and, yeah. and where we went with it with the piano solo was, was just channeling, you know, kind of a lot of obvious references like Herbie and, and, and some other people who have, have done kind of straight jazz solos over uh, kind of a funky groove, you know? Yeah, yeah. So before we get to the to the new record, The Sad Waltz, um, of all the artists that you've worked with, uh, so many over the years where you were an exec, I, I mean, I, I guess I digress. Um, I do you remember- You digress into a place that I'm not sure I want you to digress to, but carry on. Uh, no, it, it, well, I'll, I'll warm you up to it. One of the things that uh, <laughs> everyone should know listening to this, that one of the things I do remember about the business side of Chris is that um, he you you would travel back and forth to uh, London. I think you had an office in London back in the 90s. Main office was London, actually. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I, I was jealous because I, didn't you used to take the Concorde back and forth? Yes. <laughs> And then I said, you know, someday I'm going to take the Concorde. And then, of course, they stopped flying. <laughs> they did. And strangely enough, we've all adjusted, you know. We've, it was, we've, we've done just fine without it. it we've, we've done just fine without it, you know. <laughs> it, it was the, it was a... It was great while it lasted, you know. It would, it made a lot of things possible that wouldn't be possible time-wise and and energy-wise, you know. I don't think I could even remotely live the lifestyle that I did then. Um, and you know what? I'm healthier for it, probably. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was definitely a moment in time. Yeah. All right. So now, now for the what do they say that I'm, the, I'm trying to figure out how that warms you, me up to the no. to to this thing. But anyway, that's okay. No, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make it easy on you. Of of all the artists you've worked with, I won't ask you who your favorite, who your worst, what was a nightmare, but was there one artist that surprised you? Mm. One artist that surprised surprised me in 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 what sense? In in that when you when you struck the deal, if you would, and you were talking about you know possible projects that. They delivered something completely unexpected. Interesting. Um, well, I, I'll tell you. I'll have to warm up to that answer, but I'll answer. <laughs> but I'll. But I'll answer. You know, part of it. You know, maybe there's a two parts to this answer, um, or two examples. Um, the first example that I often say to people when they say, you know, what was. 
what was one of the most surprising things that ever happened to you when you were with an artist? And you don't know this story, I'm sure. But okay. I'm so, 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 so in 1990, after the wall came down, I was, it was before I was in classics and jazz and I was the head of international on the pop side. And so my, my responsibilities were to find ways to, to, um, have success with artists who were signed in America. So we had a band called the Scorpions. All right. And, you know, if you think about the Scorpions, everything you might think is true. And, <laughs> you know, good and bad. However, what they did with this, with this song called Wind of Change was it became kind of a rallying cry of, 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 independence to a lot of people one of those being Gorbachev so <laughs> Gorbachev invited the Scorpions and a couple of us me being one of the lucky others to spend the entire day in the Kremlin in <laughs> the last days of Gorbachev's reign uh, and so so from it's just mind-blowing what happened there I mean nothing bad it was all just amazing sort of head spinning, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, in, in this case, it was German, but but through a Russian interpreter. Um, but that could have never happened to me in any other circumstance. So, and it's so not what you would have expected, you know, from a hard rock band, you know. So, so, so I always say to people, you know, you just never know what you're going to get from from somebody. They were the most wonderful people, very conscientious and very caring, and they they wanted to make sure I shared that experience with them. They could have just said, no, let's just do the band, you know, you know, the band <laughs> and the manager maybe. You know, I don't want the manager; he's in trouble. You know, it was it was just. Chris, he had a big part of this. He's got to be there. And so and so they used to call me the professor because, um, well, I won't answer the rest of that. Um, it, it fit for them, I guess. So, um, and, and who made that decision? It was the band? Yeah. Wow. The, and so, and so. Um, but that's, that's the, just the other, the, the, the other surprising thing for me was. Um, when Elvis Costello and I hatched this concept of you do jazz records for Verve and classical records for Deutsche Grammophon and pop records for Mercury, and it would be, you know, perfectly suited to someone who, who talk about eclectic, couldn't channel his, his energies into a more pro forma sort of arrangement. Mm -hmm. And, um, when when we first started sort of talking about music, his passion and knowledge and confidence about what he knew, I'd never seen anything like that before from somebody in the pop world, you know, about music outside of the pop world, you know? So, so you know, and this combination of being open to my suggestions, because when we did the ballet, I said, you know, Michael Tilson Thomas, I think is the right person for you. And he said, yes. And then he would go and you'd meet Michael Tilson Thomas and they would go off in a million directions. And he just, the lesson I learned from him, and I wasn't necessarily expecting it, although once you get to know him, you're not surprised, was just this volume of detail and, um, and, quest for i don't want to say perfection but but this quest for something that he's satisfied with it really taught me a lot about discipline it taught me a lot about being open to so many things and um you know again i guess you could say that's a nice segue to to what i think is a pretty eclectic album itself but no i i look back at those those sort of late '90s and early 2000 years with um, with Elvis and big imp a big impact on me far beyond um, you know the business aspect, but just like I said, this sort of 
you know, and, and, you know, once you get it with one artist, you begin to see it with so many other artists, you know, a similar, similar situation with Wayne and Sting and, you know, John Schofield and, you know, the great artists really are, they're not one dimensional by any stretch of the imagination. Renee Fleming, they're almost, the odd thing is you go in there with this conception about, you know, they are what they are, and then you come out going, "My God, what they are is is you know, is just a, a kaleidoscope of of knowledge and interest." Yeah, and and you know, I, I've I've had I've been blessed with that experience as well. You know, uh, a, a little over a year ago, uh, after an event, uh, I was with Pat Metheny and his wife, and. Jamie Cullum and his wife, and we were just hanging out at, I think it was a St. Regis bar, and talking about everything but music, mm -hmm. and to see in their passionate level of interest in other areas, and that sort of worldliness, I think that's maybe one of the reasons they became great artists. I think you're right. We could go on forever with those examples. Um, now that now that you've opened Pandora's box for me, you know there there are so many others. But that'll be that'll be another time, maybe in, yeah. a, private, <laughs> in a private setting. Yeah. How how about um, I know that you've talked about it, and I hear it in your music. You're very inspired by Elton John. Um, very inspired by Elton John. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to be sixty soon, and um, you're gonna you're gonna join my club. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you in it? I just turned. Oh God! See, there you go. It's all these people who are, you know, right there on that at that number. You know, yeah. Um, and um, they everyone I know is either almost sixty or seventy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it, there's nothing in between. It seems nobody's in between. They're either sixty or seventy. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so I was a classical pianist. I was growing up in in a small town in Southern Oregon, um, and I could not relate to rock and roll from a guitar point of view. I liked the music, but you know, when I'd see it, you know, or it just it didn't it didn't do anything for me. And I was pretty much straight ahead classical, but you know, pushing the boundaries in my own way. And when he came along, it was sort of like, oh, you know, it was a world I had not experienced that, that, that the piano can, can do all these things, you know, like in his early albums, this percussive stuff and just, you know, always great melodies and, and the trio that he created initially, you know, was just kind of a landmark experience. And I never heard him until the late 70s, if you can believe that. Wow. So I missed on a personal uh, connection way, you know, until first time I saw him was in 1977 in Munich when he did a tour with Ray Cooper, just the piano and percussion. And it was, you know, again, a mind blower. But, yeah. but it was, uh, as my life sort of made, had its twists and turns, you know, uh, first I was supposed to be a classical pianist and then I wasn't good enough to really be a classical pianist in the way that I, w that I might have wanted a career from it. And I sort of migrated to uh, music history and then music history just was a closed door. And each of these turns, you know, that that feeling that I had when I heard his music for the first time and the um, the dream that it helped enable in me, I would draw back on that feeling, not to say I want to be Elton John, but I, what do you really want to do with your music? You know, where, where do you want to go with this? Do you really want to be a music historian? Do you want to follow your musicology? Is that what you want to do? Or do you want to write music? Do you want to be a songwriter? M maybe you, you're not a performer, but you're a songwriter. And, and do you really want to follow that dream? And it would give me this sort of inspiration to do that. And, you know, it's not easy when you go from 
nothing to trying to fulfill a dream, right? I mean, I had no pedigree when I landed in Germany. I just was an American uh, who uh, was a pretty good pianist who was following really every lead that I might to sort of hook up with someone to write a song or maybe somebody needed a demo or play on, you know, just like everybody else who had a dream does, unless you're lucky enough to just have it all fall in your lap the first time, you know? And so, so a couple of years of, of just hustling and saying yes to almost everything. And then all of a sudden a few breaks and a few opportunities. And then, you know, it's happening. You know, I'm writing for a TV show. I'm writing for a commercial. I'm writing for, you know, um, what have you. And, and, um, and, I really, if if I hadn't had that inspiration that I drew back on, that he uh, sort of helped instill in me, I don't think it would have happened for me. I really don't. So, so, so the track that I call "Guardian Angel" on on the new album is is um, it's a for me it's a really powerful song, and and I throw a few references musically in there there's border song with this chord change there's a couple of licks there's this ambiguity between minor and major that he often liked to do and a lot of that when i wrote it was not conscious you know it's you know when you're in the throes of the creative experience and most of these albums most of these songs are written as I said, almost as improvisations, you know, some of them start and then I stop and then I, I kind of lock in and then I go with it wherever it goes. But for the most part, they're start to finish as they come and flow through me. So hmm. it's a kind of strange experience of get out of the way, it's happening, but yet you're very conscious as you play, the minute you hit a chord, you go, that's, that's the diminished seventh and border song. Oh my God. You know, and, and, you know, and it just, they're almost like paintings in the sense that uh, if, if you look at a Chagall painting, you know, you'll see a guitar or you see a donkey or you, there are all these light motifs, you know, yeah. in there. And, and in the, in the moment in that particular song, you know, I, I knew there would be a few of those things. So, so it all sounds very complicated, but you know, it all happens in three or four minutes, you know, and then it's done. And then, and, and then begins the arrangement process. But, but, you know, when I started reflecting on that song um, and, you know, the title was, uh, you just, that was, a, it was a perfect title. It was just sort of a way of thanking him uh, in a way that he may never hear about, but, uh, but it was, um, it was a good, it came pretty early on in the process. So it was, it was a, it was a, a nice way to kind of, uh, get, dive into, to this project, the sad waltz, uh, that I knew would be a journey, journey through a lot of different, um, musical styles and emotions yeah so so while we're on the subject of that track um uh, i believe also with you on that track is uh pianist randy porter uh randy and um and andy schnitzer did the brass yep. uh, arrangements there so a lot of a lot of people from that you probably know well oh yeah well actually there, I, I have a great story for you about randy porter um, back in the early nineties, uh, when jazz was at time Warner, uh, they had asked us to do these special quarterly issues in addition to the monthlies. And I had to come up with some sort of thematic type issues that would be enjoyable for the readers, but different than what they were getting on the monthly basis. So we, we decided to do these instrument themed issues one would be keyboard one would be guitar one would be vocal one would be percussion the first one we did uh was piano and as part of these themed issues we would hold i guess for lack of a better uh term talent searches and i would get really big name artists to be the judges like for the piano one it was dave brubeck and bob james and um one of the winners uh, of that talent search was uh, a young Randy Porter. 
And so I was on a phone call a couple months after that issue came out with Gino Vanelli. <laughs> and he was listening to uh, another this, another another Portlander, at least now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he said, you know, I, I really need a, a new young pianist who could kind of understand my thing. And I said and I thought about it for a while and I said, you know. There's this guy, Randy Porter, you got to check him out. And the rest is history. I mean, uh, Randy did lots of things with Gino over the years. And, uh, you know, two of my favorite artists. And so the Randy Porter story. Another two degrees of separation. Yeah. Since Gino, Gino was on Verve at the t same time as IE, right? You know, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, in fact, before you signed him. And, and Portland being. Yeah. There, I mean, it's, you know, I hadn't thought about any of that, to be honest with you. You know, uh, of course, I didn't know about what you said about the, uh, you know, what you were doing with him, you know, where he pat, where he, he got the gig from you. But uh, yeah. that's great. No, you know, my, I always forget how connected you are, you know, how much um, I, I used to love, I say used to, because we're doing it now, but I don't mean it like that, you know, but it's been a while since we've really connected on, on this sort of level, yeah. uh, sort of two ships in the night at Trattoria notwithstanding. Um, but, but it is um, staggering your belief and passion for, for this music. I mean, for music in general and, and, and sort of the jazz, the, the sort of large scope of jazz side, notwithstanding. Um, I, I, I remember, I think we might've sort of connected for the first time on those issues of jazz in art that you yeah. did jazz sure. is magazine. And that's become a real kind of um, love of mine now, uh, you know, and I always am looking at or taken by, you know, uh, that, that, that whole experience. And that's a, not a, necessarily a subject for, for now, but, but the, the influence of art in my music is really, I often sort of compose with the sort of the, the concept of a painting kind of to help guide me. So, well, you, so, well, so you, you, you cover a lot of territory, my friend. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, you know, it, I can tell the listeners one funny story about art, you and me. Um, we had uh, commissioned a Ornette Coleman cover uh, <laughs> yeah. to a very, very, uh, one of my favorite artists. Uh, uh, I think his name was uh, Dubois. Gerard Dubois. Gerard Dubois. And um, uh, I remember, I believe my office called him because a lot of times when we do an art cover, we, we like to, in addition to commissioning it, paying for the licensing usage, we like to buy the original. And I had heard, oh, I'm sorry, someone else has already purchased it. And so I walk into your office one day, <laughs> and there it is on the wall. <laughs> and uh, it, but, but I said really, you had an influence on me. I really well, did. Come on. But it was it was a good for you, Chris. You have good taste. <laughs> well, good. All right. I'll let you be the judge of that. But uh, we certainly share a, a appreciation and love of his work for sure. Yeah. So, so back to the new album, uh, the, the sad waltz, it's, uh, it, it could be, a, it is sad. In fact, it, it's, it's kind of like, I guess if I were to describe it sort of sad movie music, it, there's a, there's a particular track. My favorite track on the album is, uh, the, the steps of Mora. And that's one of mine too. It's a lot of people's favorite track to be honest it, with you. It could be the theme song to a great movie, hands down. And and it, it I think of all the sort of soundscapes that you provide on this record, that's the one that does it for me. And in fact, it's not the jazziest track because I'm not, not at a all. Not, yeah. not remotely. Uh, if I were to pick maybe the jazziest track, it might be 
oh, I'm trying to remember the names of the tracks. Uh, there was one on there that was particularly jazzy. It was uh, maybe... There's, there's, a, there's the big band. The Mighty the, Quinn? Yeah, the Mighty Quinn Martin. You have to say, you have to put the Martin in there because it was, that was, um, you know, stepping back a little bit, you know, when I, when, when, when I said I'm going to, obviously the title of the album did not exist then, you know, in fact, there were no titles to anything, you know, when you write without a lyric or something, you know, with the exception of how I can see it now, everything is sort of title-less. So, you know, it's, it's a raison d'etre and, and, you know, it's sort of kind of uh, distilling the essence down to a title is a process uh, that takes place later in life, you know, in the life of the project. So, so when I wrote that, that was, and again, another one of these moments where it's just all there on the piano demo. Some of the ideas, you know, are almost sort of scream out and say, okay, this has got to be that instrument, this has got to be that instrument. But that was, I said, you know, I've always loved these old sort of big, bold, you know, dynamic jazz scores that you never hear anymore that uh, even crept into, you know, uh, TV shows in the 70s, like Streets of San Francisco sure. on production. But Streets of San Francisco was kind of in my mind at the same time, uh, and Quinn Martin didn't do Ironside, but, you know, score. but it was that mood that I went for here. And so it was both that and also the challenge to myself to write something I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that's, and, and I always love sometimes these tongue in cheek titles. So the mighty Quinn Martin, not to think that anybody uh, would be, you know, that I would challenge uh, to do a cover of, of Bob right. Dylan's The Mighty Quinn. I think Manfred Mann has already done that. So, 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 so anyway, um, that's, probably the most jazz of any of the things on there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and I, I had, I don't know why, but the first time I listened to it, um, I thought I heard Chris Bodie, but I think it was, it was someone there's no, else. There's no Chris Bodie on there. Yeah. I think, I think it, I think I may have been confusing maybe Thomas Barber or someone playing trumpet and there's I, a lot of there's a lot of trumpet on the record, and yeah. and and the most Bodie like, if you want to say, is is um, a track that comes sort of later, you know, in the sequence. It's called "One Last Time." Mm -hmm. It's a very ambient track. I always say it's a very sad track, but other people say I don't know what it's sad about. It's just beautiful. But <laughs> but you know, I kind of think it's. I wrote that capturing a very sort of sad feeling um and, and there's not a lot of stuff that points to the dying of my parents on this record i did most of that on the last record right uh, right by the railroad but i've had a, you know we sort of said it you know where you're 60 nearly 60 uh, friends are 70 you know we're dealing with a lot of sadness around us i'm not even talking about the world percent talking about our own personal dealings with our friends and family. And I said, you know, that feeling when you have that last conversation with some, I really wanted to get that feeling that this is it, you know, at least in this world for one last time, you're going to have a chance to share a moment with somebody. And, and, there is this haunting, muted kind of trumpet um, part that comes and goes throughout that piece one last time that that um, I thought about Chris, but but um, he's a hard man to um, to reach. I, I still stay in touch with him, but but there's a guy who lives in Seattle uh, is Thomas Barber, who Bob Stark, who helped produce and arrange the whole project with me. And, and Bob has been as important as anybody uh, in in having these ideas sort of be realized. But he he knows Thomas and he said, we got to get him. He's great. Yeah, he's great. And, and, he's, and he's all over the album. And, and there's there's a lot of drum. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have imagined me to sort of have so much trumpet, but it just kind of 
came out that way. You know? It so, worked. It worked. It worked. Yeah. And Gil Goldstein, one of my favorite artists. Uh, I know. Well, that's uh, you know, I again, this th- th- that album actually, I said I want to write a waltz. Yeah. <laughs> How about a sad waltz? So 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 that that actually was almost like a challenge to myself. And some of these. I'm sure other people who might be listening to this or certainly people who who you've spoken to, a lot of times the motivation to write something, it's not just I'm I'm in a mood, I'm going to go to the piano, I'm going to write, you know. A lot of times it's quite specific, you know. And mm-hmm. this was, I sat down, I said, I'm going to write a waltz, a uh, sad waltz. And um, and the first few chords, I went, okay, this is a sad waltz. And so so I I I, I did that. And then when it came to arranging uh, Bob and I sat down, and I, and I said, "Yeah, I kind of have an idea. You know, maybe it's Big Spider Beck, and I had a, sort of a little bit of, of, of thinking of Ragtime and Randy Newman, and and um, we did an arrangement, and I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't like it; it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And Gil had done an arrangement, an arrangement of a cover of Tom Waits' The Heart of Saturday Night, on the last album." And um, I loved what he did with that. So I called him up and I said, simple, really simple. Maybe one string instrument. And he listened and he goes, how about cello and accordion? And obviously, the, and so he wrote the arrangement to the piano part that was, that was already recorded. And, and that was it. And, and, and for me, the... I wanted something because there is a cinematic aspect to it, obviously. I wanted the whole, you know, that song title sort of ended up being the, kind of the the overall concept of of the album, more from a mood point of view. It's not like every song is sad and every song is a waltz, but it just sort of, to me, kind of um, gave, I'm still thinking, physical right you know right artwork yeah i'm still thinking yeah. Yeah. that you know is is maybe a, a, a something that compels somebody to buy something i'm probably dating myself there but um um but well, anyway, so so i wanted that visual and the song seemed to really capture that for me so that that's why it became it became the title well you know it it, it it's a it's a it's an interesting title in that it uh, the waltz is all already kind of like jazz, very misunderstood. Uh, yeah. it, you know, if you think about it, technically peasant dance music from Austria, Bavarian, whatever you want to, whatever your feeling is of, of a waltz, you know, one step to each beat. But it's evolved really to when you want to create what I've heard, romantic music, you know, uh, Vienna, uh, you know, when it was the music center of Europe, that I get that kind of feeling. And and what's really kind of a, an aside is that our mutual friends, Lee Rittenauer, years ago, wrote a waltz for his wife, and it's not surprisingly called Waltz for Carmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more recently, Bob James did an album, and he wrote a waltz for Judy. <laughs> Uh, so it's it it well now you've upset my wife because her name's not in the title so your wife your wife should definitely not listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's the title and uh on on the eyes and no yeah i think i think i'm i think you should parenthetically uh, include your wife on that she, on she, she you know she gets special thanks that's <laughs> so you live now in New York. Yes. And and so you, I've, been, I've been in I've been a New Yorker since 1989, really. Right. But, but with with long stretches of, you know, of sort of uh, by ad, transatlantic sort of lifestyle between London and New York. But uh, yes, yes, I am in, in a, uh, my adopted home, New York. Yeah. And and but. And so do you do you miss the kind of being a part time European? Um, well, it's not like I miss it in the sense that that, you know, I never I still travel a lot. So so 
Um, no, I wouldn't say that I, I don't feel there's anything to miss. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm in Europe as much as, as I would want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I love the time living in London and, and having, you know, sort of seeing more of Europe. But, but you know, a couple of years ago, we spent the month living in Rome. So, so and, and, I, and I'm two or three times in Europe now. And honestly, I think I kind of appreciate, you know, you'll, you'll understand this and maybe the listeners will understand this too. When you're, when you're sort of traveling nonstop, it's like an artist on the road, you, you know, you're not really appreciating what you're seeing like you should be. And so now I have a little more time on my hands. So, so, uh, those trips that I make, um, I'm absorbing at least as much as I did before. So it's not, yeah. I don't miss, it, but, but it's different, you know, it's just different. Yeah. Different now it was, it's not better or worse. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to, um, get my kids to know life outside the U S we spent the summer in Europe and, and, uh, it was great for them to see that, you know, this isn't the only place and people live differently and you should get out there and see the world. Um, that's good advice. See yeah. the world and get out of your comfort zone.